Tonight, we continue here in chapter 16 of the book of Genesis, and we're going to begin to take pretty much chapter by chapter from here on out, with a few rare exceptions. And so tonight, chapter 16, and a message that is so important for us, and it's dangerous detours. Dangerous detours, the, the story of Abram and Hagar, and of course, Sarai as well. How many of you in your Christian experience, you've been walking with the Lord for a while, how many of you have ever tried to help God out? Yeah, we're kind of prone to do that, aren't we? You know, God takes about three nanoseconds too long to do something. Go, well, he just fell asleep on the job, so I'll just help him out. Yeah, we are prone to this issue that comes to us in such a beautiful way for us to be able to to look back on Abram and Sarai's life and realize we're not alone in, in our propensity to help God out. There are a ton of lessons in this particular chapter. And before we dig in, I want to remind you that Abram, who will become Abraham, is also the chief, beautiful testimony of both God's faithfulness and the faithful living of a man. And so even though he stumbles, even though he fails, he is one of those guys that you kind of go, man, is this the same guy we saw last week? Uh, he is a man of faith, and men of faith and women of faith occasionally make bad decisions. And so if you're here tonight and maybe you're struggling through a period of bad decision or you're struggling through a period of indecision or maybe you're struggling through a time of waiting on the Lord, uh, this message really is for you tonight. And so I want to encourage you. I, I pray that you'll be lifted up. There's a lot of lessons here and there are lessons that we can learn from, of course, others' mistakes. And we want to do that because they prevent us, or should help prevent us, from making the same types of mistakes in our own lives. And so uh, tonight, a dangerous detour with uh, Abram and Hagar. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we are so blessed that we get to be able to be here tonight. And Lord, I want to thank you for all these that have taken time out of their schedule, Lord, on a Sunday evening to come and sit and listen and study your word and pray that it would be an enriching time and a blessing time, a time where we can look and and see that uh, you are faithful even when we have been faithless. Lord, when we've stumbled, we've taken detours. Lord, you're the God that puts us back on track. And you even make good out of evil. And we'll see that throughout the remainder of this amazing book. And so God, bless us tonight as we read your word and study it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Genesis 16, we'll take the whole chapter. And now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And that's, of course, the setting for this whole picture. Remember, the promise has been made. That promise includes that he's going to have descendants more numerous than the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven. And so one would not really fault Abram nor Sarai from looking at this whole situation and going, man, did, did we miss something here? Is there, was there part of this you know, did, were we not listening when God said part of this? You can look at this story from both the extremely negative side and the extremely positive side, or, or you can kind of land in the middle, which is what I prefer to do. There's some pretty serious negative behavior that they're going to entertain here, but there's also some faith that kind of shines through uh, in this particular story. And so uh, let's make sure that we leave poor Sarai and Abram in a place to where we can honor them because uh, they do turn this around and, and the whole thing actually ultimately does work out and Abram and Sarai are the father of Messiah ultimately. They do bring forth uh, the promised one. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Now remember back, how would she have an Egyptian maidservant? Because Abram's already biffed it before. 
Abram's already been a man who has kind of chosen to walk in the flesh a little bit. He didn't trust God. There's a famine in the land, so he takes his family and moves them off to a type of the world, to Egypt. And so the only reason that Hagar has this Egyptian maidservant is because her dumb-as-a-hot-rock hubby took her down to Egypt, okay? So we have to be careful. I think people sometimes pick on either Sarai or I, or Abram and kind of you know put this whole thing on one or the other of them. Uh, this is a real team dunce effort. Uh, they, they both have a place in kind of not making such great decisions here. And yet they're not decisions that are divorced from probably some of the same thinking that you've had. I know that I've had. It's like, I don't know what you're doing, God, so I'm just going to do something. You know, we, we kind of live in, a, in, a, in an age, especially here in America, where, you know, let, let's just do something. Even if it's wrong, let's do something. Uh, and that's not, of course, God's plan. He wants us to wait. And so, sir, I said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, and perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And so this is not a total lapse of faith. And while we do not know what the custom of Abram and Sarai and those descendants were that were dwelling in the land of Canaan at this time, um, we're pretty sure that God's opinion about marriage, which he founded in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, was one man, one woman for life. And so this is an allowance again. So be careful about translating this into our modern day and time. Uh, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. But you can kind of see there's a little bit of Sarai kind of going, you know, I, I, man, I don't want to miss this. And God said that we're supposed to be this family that brings forth this multitude. And I don't know how that's going to happen. So let's just take the lesser of two evils here. Let's help God out. And then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband and Abram to be his to, to her husband Abram to be his wife, and Abram after he had dwelt there ten years in the land of Canaan. So they've been ten years in the land. They have no children. The promise was made. And so the implication is very, very clear here. Now I want you to also think back. This is kind of a little bit of a learned behavior within the family because what did Abram do with Sarai? He gave her away to the Egyptians, fearing for his own life. And so th this is, again, the remnant of bad decisions. Can I tell you that bad decisions beget other bad decisions? We can help people learn either the ways of the Lord or not the ways of the Lord by immersing them in decisions that are not from God. It's one of the reasons, and this is not to pick on anyone or anything, not any particular sin. If you're one of those families that believes you have a liberty to consume alcoholic beverages in front of your children, don't be surprised if your children end up alcoholics. If you're one of those ones that is rejoicing right now because we've legalized marijuana here in the state of California... And, and you're a toker and a midnight smoker. You're showing your kids, you're showing your kids that that's okay. Maybe your spouse doesn't have that particular issue in their life, but because you're taking that liberty, you're showing them a way of life. Because you're not careful about the movies that you watch, and the content of those movies, you may be able to handle it, but maybe your children or maybe your spouse can't handle it. And so your decisions weigh in other people's lives. You can end up driving your own family away from the Lord or drawing them to the Lord by your decisions. It will still be their responsibility for the sin. 
but you can show them how to get to that sin. And in this case, while this is Sarai's doing, Abram started this. He's the one that led the family astray initially, and that is still bearing fruit, even though they have come back from Egypt and they're back where they're supposed to be, and Abram has just fought this battle against these kings of the, of the Jordan River Valley and won the remnants of that bad decision that he made to go to Egypt in the first place is living right in the midst of his own home and her name as Hagar. Be careful. Because sin has consequences. And sometimes they do not manifest themselves immediately. They can come back later in life. And so we went into Hagar and she conceived... And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. You see, this is one of those situations where what seemed like a good idea one day turned into a bad idea the next. Be careful about acting impulsively to help God out. Not only is it not a good idea to help God out, especially don't act impulsively to help God out. I can't even tell you how many families I've counseled. You know, you really don't make enough money to buy that home. And you're asking God to bless you to give you the home, but he hasn't given you the job to get the home. And so they lie on the mortgage application and they borrow the money from their aunt's uncle, cousin Vinny, who believes in concrete overshoes. And before you know it, they're swimming with debt and they're about to be swimming with the fishes. You got to be careful. God's a big God. If He wants you to have something, He's capable of providing it. And I can tell you, I've stumbled in my own life in this area. It's like, Lord, you know, we can just lease that car. You know, we don't, we don't really need to buy that. We lease that car. You know, after all, you want me to have a nice ride all pimped out, right? (laughs) And then came the 1983 Pontiac Fiero. (laughs) Dear God in heaven, if you own one of those, I'll pray the Lord delivers you. You you can try and help God out. You see, you've got to be really careful. And then your family bears part of that. It's, it's their finances as well that are messed up. Now this one who was given to Abram becomes a despised person for doing in essence what she was asked to do and Sarai said to Abram my wrong be upon you I gave my maid into your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived I became despised in her eyes the Lord judged between you and me she's starting to have some serious second thoughts but it's a wee touch late, isn't it? You know, there's some things that we do in life that you can rethink them a day later. You can cancel that contract on something you're about to buy, but you can't cancel the child that's born out of wedlock because you're in someone else's bed. Be careful. Be careful. And so Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do with her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. That's pretty cold-hearted, if you ask me. You kind of look at that whole situation, and it's like you, you begin to feel sorry pretty quickly for Hagar. At least I do. I'm not sure she knew any better being an Egyptian. 
you know anything about the Egyptian culture, they, they were not exactly puritanical. This would have been perfectly acceptable within Egyptian culture. It would have been absolutely normal. It would have been something largely expected, in fact. And so now she's hated. And I want you to notice in verse 7, this is the first appearance. This is again uh, another example of the law first mentioned, the angel of the Lord. There's only one. Uh, and generally speaking, there's only a couple of instances that I can think of. And it generally has to do with the translation into English as to whether it is the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord that this particular angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, is none other than a pre-incarnate visitation by the Lord Jesus himself. And now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, my mistress Sarai. She's literally running away from the situation. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress. Submit yourself unto her hand. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will. Now, I don't know about you, there's only one angel of the Lord that could possibly make an I will statement. That's one of the reasons that we believe this is really Jesus. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted, so they shall be counted, excuse me, for a multitude. Remember that Jesus has always been God. Before he was here, he was there. He was seen as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world was even laid. So in heaven, Jesus existed before he came here as a babe in a manger. And because this is information that only God would have had from heaven, it's almost a certainty that this is Jesus. I will. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. And you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And he'll be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. And then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also here been seen with him who sees me. And therefore the well was called Be'er La Rohai. And is between Kadesh and Bered. And so Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Remember the consequences of sin. You see, what Abram and Sarai saw in this was what you and I typically see in almost every circumstance and situation. We're, we're looking for a naturalistic or a natural, a humanistic or a human caused or induced or solution to virtually everything. And God actually has made a promise that's not going to be taken care of that way. He never intended for Abram and Sarai to have the last word in this. He said, I will do it. He said, I will provide. He said, this is going to be of me. It's not going to be of you. But they chose not to believe. And so this is the consequence of unbelief in that sense. And when you think about the consequences that are here, it's really important for us to understand God's perspective in this. God does not ever... And please hear what I'm going to say very, very carefully. It's not that there aren't things that we end up engaged in that are not the very best that God has for us. Sometimes those things are out of our control. But God will never ask you to compromise his will. 
You may end up compromising his will, but he will not ask you to compromise his will. He's not going to put you in a situation where you have to choose between two things, neither of which are from him. You may be in situations where you have two things, neither of which are of him. And your instruction from the Lord in that place, in that day, in that time, is to wait on the Lord. Not to simply choose one of the two things or three things or five things that are presented to you which are clearly not from God. God made a promise to Abram and Sarai. He did not ask for, his, for them to help him. He didn't say, well, if in a year you haven't had any children, can you find a surrogate mother? That wasn't part of the plan. There, there was never a time when God said, you know, I, you know, okay, just whatever. Job 36, the book of Job is, a, is one of those books that it's actually one of my favorites in the Old Testament, though it is a little tough to get through in spots. But it has some, some of the most beautiful truths that we find in all of the Old Testament. And in this conversation that Job ends up having with all of these people, his friends, these guys that supposedly come to comfort him, as he's talking, and then ultimately he has these long discourses with God. And God kind of puts the beat down on him. He says, where were you when I framed the heavens? Job got to understand very clearly that God was God and Job was not God. In chapter 36, verse 4, he says, for truly God does to Job in one of these conversations, my words are not false, one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. That's God's direct word to Job. He's saying, look, I don't make mistakes. I don't have like an A, B, and a C. I've got an A. That's it. I've got a perfect will. The B, the C, the D, and the F, those are all yours. Those are things that you make up. I've got a perfect plan for this. And you need to wait for me to put that perfect plan in place. The prophet Isaiah understood the exact same thing in Isaiah 55. Very familiar to most of you. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. God doesn't think the way we think. God can simultaneously manage every single person's life to the most minute detail on the entire earth simultaneously. Most of us cannot manage our own lives, okay? Amen? You think about it. I don't know if you guys ever make mistakes. I do. I think things through and I come to the wrong conclusion sometimes. I am, I'm a little prone to actually overthinking things at times. Ask my bride, Connie, she'll tell you. I'm, I overthink things. I concern myself with things that she somehow in faith can actually, you know, it's just like, okay, I'm just going to wait on God. And I'm like, well, don't you care? Can I tell you that worrying is not caring? Worrying is worrying. We don't need to be God. We need God to be God. And we need to listen for his voice. Verse 8 there says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. Now we know that that now is a long, long ways. Talking about the heavens, the expanse of space. Some 13.7 billion light years of space that we know about. As high as the heavens are above the earth is another way to look at it. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In other words, the magnitude of God's capability for thinking is so extremely much more great than yours that you don't even have anything to compare it to. So when you think about God thinking, you can't think how he thinks. Does that make sense to you? You're, you're incapable of actually even understanding the thought processes of God because we're here and he's there. Now he doesn't ask you to put your brain on the shelf. 
He doesn't tell you stop thinking. He says, trust me, I know stuff you don't. I understand ways you don't understand. I get processes and procedures you will not understand the whole time you're on this earth. As I've gotten older, I've realized there's just a lot of things I just simply have to trust God with. One of them is the lostness of mankind. It's one, of those, it's one of those things that keeps a lot of pastors up at night. Especially when I'm traveling. I go to places where most people that I run across have very little understanding of the real gospel message. And I'm just, I, sometimes I get overwhelmed. It's like, Lord, these people don't know you. What are you doing about it? Well, Jeff, I sent you. But I can't reach them all. That's my thought process. I'm just here to do this pastor's conference, Lord. What are we going to do with the other 10,000 people that are here in this town? You see, my thoughts are he needs me or he needs somebody to be able to preach the gospel when in fact maybe he's spoken to every last person in that town by himself through the Holy Spirit the good news of the gospel. I don't know, but I know this. God loves every last person in that town. And he is not willing, he is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if that's his wish, then it's on him to do something about it. And so then you find out, oh yeah, for the last 20 years, there's been missionaries here every week. It's like, oh, well, that was me, God. Being me. Limiting you. Don't limit God. He is without limit in his capacity. There's a funicular railway, for those of you that have ever seen them, are the cog railways. They're usually on an incline. They're kind of the, the old-fashioned tramway, if you will. And there are a number of them still in, in Europe. And when Connie and I were there, there's a couple of places that still have them. We never got a chance to actually go see this one. But there's actually a mountain outside of Lucerne, Switzerland, that's named after Pontius Pilate. It's actually Mount Pilatus. Pontius Pilatus is Pontius Pilate's name in, in Latin. It's named after him, but the reason it got that is the Romans actually harnessed this waterfall with a, with a giant wheel, and they ground all kinds of grains and those types of things and cattle feed and for decades and then ultimately centuries there were sawmills and everything attached to this thing and they finally got this brilliant idea that the water wheel could generate enough torque to actually push push this railroad car from the bottom of the mountain to near the top and in the process of a gentleman riding that in the 1800s, the late 1800s, early 1900s, maybe, he made an astounding assessment. The same water that turned only one direction was the power that took the car up and it took the car down. And that's kind of the way our own human wills and God's wills work together. It's the same power. It's the same power source. It's the same knowledge. It's the same understanding. But part of it is him to me and part of it's me to him. My response is praise. My response is prayer. My response is to seek him and his response is to give me that same knowledge. But it all comes from him. It all comes from the waterfall. It all comes from God. And so when you think about what God is thinking about, he's thinking about everything. And so the secret here is if you take God out of the equation, all you've got left is you. If he's not the power source, if he is not the plan, then we're stuck with us. And the consequences of our decisions. And that rarely works out all that well. Now it's not that every decision we make is dumb. It's not that every decision we make is wrong. But if I really want to have my decisions count, 
And if I really want to go through as few problems as I possibly can, then I need to listen to what the Lord has to say. And so to that end, we have to actually beware of our own wisdom. This painful detour that they're on right now, that Abraham, who's about to become Abraham, and Sarah, who is now still Sarai, as they walk this this journey with God, this detour is going to bring massive conflict into their home because they try to take things into their own hands. But it's also going to bring that same conflict into the world. And in fact, that conflict still exists to this day in the form of the, what we call the Middle East conflict, the Arab-Israeli conflict. The Hebrews and the Arabs are still battling those who are of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who are of Ishmael are still at each other. It all began in this chapter from one bad decision. It should give you a sense of how one bad decision can not only ruin your life, but it may ruin the world. Your decisions matter, and you have to be careful of your own wisdom. What we see as we digest this chapter is really a step-by-step tour of the detour, if you will. And the first thing that you see is actually a good thing. They waited on God. Abram's 75 years old. He's been walking with the Lord in the land of Canaan. He's been in the promised land now including his detour down to Egypt for about 10 years. And there's no doubt he'd learned some valuable lessons about faith. There's zero doubt about that. But the problem was this baby was not just any baby. It wasn't just a baby. This baby was supposed to be Messiah, forerunner of. This is the lineage of Jesus. And so a very special child is who this baby is going to be. And so it can't just be, well, let's just make a baby. It wasn't that simple. We have a tendency when we look at things from our own perspective to just simply see kind of the nuts and bolts of it. God sees the whole thing. And there's some lessons that you can learn in this this waiting. They simply had not waited long enough. Amen? That's all it was. And we know that because we're going to see the rest of the story. But God hadn't fallen off the throne. God wasn't, you know, taken aback by it. God wasn't going, oh no, you know, they're really old. Boy, I sure messed up in giving them the promise. You know, I actually had a discussion one time with a couple of students and they were saying, well, you know, God just made a a poor decision in choosing them. I should have got somebody younger. I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? Well, you know, if they'd have got started earlier, it wouldn't have been such a big problem. I said, so you don't believe God can accomplish what he set out to do? And he said, well, it would have been easier for God. I said, there's nothing too hard for God. With God, all things are possible, okay? So get off the backs of the old people. Because I'm one of them. There's some lessons that you can learn. Firstly, whatever is not done of faith, whatever is not done of the glory of God, is often done simply for the praise of man. We want to do things for the glory of God. It's that principle we find in Romans 4.20. As you're waiting on God, you can wait in faith. The second thing that we see in that is just simply a willingness to wait in faith. We we want to let God have time. The only thing that you basically have in your control with regard to everything in your life is time. You have control of your time. God's given you those minutes of every hour of every day. And he's giving you control over that time. It's what you do with it that either 
looks towards God's, God filling that, that which he has said and wants in your life or hinders what he has said and wants in your life. So you have to wait. You have to simply say, God, you haven't spoken clearly. It's just time to wait. And so I'm not going to make haste. I'm going to listen to that word of Isaiah 28. And they that, they that make haste will be proven to be not of faith. A third thing that you can kind of see in this whole process of waiting is, is are you going to act on God's authority or are you going to act on your own authority? Sarah and Abraham act on their own authority. They're not acting on God's authority. They're not in conjunction with God's will. They're not in concert with God's will. They're not fulfilling that Romans ten seventeen promise that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of the Lord was, I got this. I will do this. And so they're saying, look, we're not quite sure. So that third evidence of faith that we see in this waiting process is just, are you going to act on the authority of God's word? I pray you do. I pray I do. And then the fourth thing, notice what's missing in their life. What happens instantaneously in this story? Conflict, war, lack of peace. All of a sudden inside the family, Abram's blaming Sarai. Sarai's blaming Abram. They're both blaming Hagar. Hagar's taken off. She's out in the woods. God himself has to go console her and send her back. There is zero peace in this home. One of the great evidences of the Lord's faith working in your life is peace. And let the peace of God guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That admonition of Paul to the church at Philippi. Pray about everything. Be anxious for nothing. And let the peace of God be anxious for nothing. Do you think they were being anxious? Do you think they had a Pauline understanding of anxiousness? No, they were very anxious. They're going, look, we're not getting any younger. We got no kids. You made a promise. God, we're going to help you out because you're going to look bad if we don't help you out. I'll give you a little secret. You don't need to help God out, and he will never look bad because of what he does. But he may well look bad because of what we do. So don't try and help him out. Wait on the Lord. These evidences then, you're willing to wait, you're concerned about the glory of God, you obey God's word, and you have God's joy, you have peace within as you wait. A second thing that we see here that they're doing that is really prevalent in here is they begin scheming. And I like that word. It means to devise a plan that is not necessarily good. They're scheming. They're like, well, you know, we could do it this way, or we could do it that way, or we could kind of maybe, well, you know. God doesn't need your schemes. He doesn't need my schemes. And they ultimately end up scheming against God. I believe initially they think, well, this is the best we can do. But ultimately, they have to put together a plan. And the whole plan turns out bad because the whole thing's built on flesh. And I would remind you that this is the very thing that comes into view for us in the book of James in the fourth chapter when James says, where do wars, where do fights come from among you? Do they not come from your members that war against one another from within? He said, so then we find this principle is in view for us that to be a friend with the world is to be an enemy of God. They're trying to do things the world's way. They've gone down to the, you know, Hagar's fertility clinic and decided they're going to do things their way. They're going to help God. And God hasn't asked for their help. Faith is living without scheming. It's what it is. 
We just believe God. We, we do what he says. Back in chapter 15, God had already told Abram, he says, know this surely. I will. You see, they were kind of being selfish in that sense. And what happens in God's delays, which are not always denials, everybody knows that, right? Just because God's delaying something doesn't mean he said no. It could just mean you're not ready. The world's not ready. The circumstance isn't ready. There's other things that have to happen. If it happened right now, it wouldn't be what I want it to be. So I'm having you wait. God's delays are not necessarily denials. But this is where we begin to scheme. This is, this is where we start helping God out. And here's what happens. As soon as we start to come up with our own plan, the enemy whispers in your ear, oh, that's a good one. The enemy comes right along, and he even makes part of it seem to work out. All of a sudden, you get that call, and it's like, you know you didn't put down your proper income on that mortgage application, and you get a call from the realtor. Guess what? They've accepted your offer. Honey, praise the Lord. They accepted our offer. And your wife, who's been convinced to sign the mortgage application against her own better judgment because she knows the income you're representing isn't actually what you currently make. It's what you were making before you got fired. And the enemy goes, see, I'm trying to bless you. So you scheme a little more. Then you get your aunt's, uncle's, cousin's friend, Fred. If your name's Fred and you're in here, I'm sorry I chose your name. (laughs) Has nothing to do, all Freds are exonerated from this story. (laughs) And he writes a little letter on his real estate company's heading, Yes, I know that this is, yeah, we were verifying this income that they can't actually prove. Now, before you know it, oh, you got the house. But you can't make the mortgage payment. The enemy's going, you got it. Be careful. Those schemes come back around and they get to you. That's what happens here with Abram and Sarai. Not everything that is legal is necessarily approved by God. There's a whole lot of things that are legal that God says, oh no you don't, not as one of my children. One of them that you can see here was the new polygamous marriage that he has. It's almost assuredly that that came from Egypt. It was legal there. Abram should have never known about it. Sarai should have never known about it. But now they know about it. They say, well, you know, down in Egypt. Notice that Abram's not doing any complaining here. He didn't stand up, well, you know, honey, I don't think I can do that. No, it's because he had compromised. And so that compromise took seed in his life. Instead of waiting, they're debating. And so you see kind of the opposite of the steps that we just outlined. They were unwilling to wait. They rushed ahead of the Lord. They acted to please themselves. They didn't act to glorify God. They weren't willing to obey the word. They were willing to discount the word. And they certainly did not bring peace and joy into their home. They had everything but peace and joy in their home. And so it brings up the third. They started to fight battles with everyone about everything. And those battles continue to this day. And the only way that you get out of this, you have to stop fighting with God. 
You have to stop fighting with others. You got to do things God's way. You have to be restored to those circumstances and situations. But man, you talk about some terrible solutions to this problem. Look what they managed to come up with after they're trying to take care of this mess that they themselves created. Here's their solutions. Sarai's solution was to blame her husband and mistreat her servant. That was her solution. Well, she shouldn't have done that. She's right. He shouldn't have. Kind of missing her own part in this. And what's the excuse for mistreating poor Hagar? What did she do? She was a servant. She was Sarai's property. She was literally owned by Sarai. As vile and disgusting as that whole thought process is, that's the way it was. So she's the one that's in the wrong, and now she's going to blame the servant girl. So she begins to mistreat her and vent her anger on her. Abram's solution was to abdicate his spiritual headship in the home. Okay, honey, whatever you say. Sounds good to me. Two wives are better than one. You talk about a knucklehead. He should have said no. She said, no, that's not what we learned. That's not what we know. That's not what we, we didn't come here to bring Egypt to Canaan. We came here to build an altar and a tent. We came to dwell in the land that God gave us. And of course, Hagar's solution is just simply run away. Cover it up. That's a tactic that we all learned from Adam and Eve, by the way. Most of this stuff started in the Garden of Eden, so we haven't gotten a whole lot better at it, some of us. Don't come up with terrible solutions to problems. That's where you've got to stop and say, Lord, I need you to step into this. The actual real solution was a whole lot more simple than that. Hagar simply needed to submit to God. The mistake had been made. The child's on his way. Ishmael, whose name means God hears, by the way. And it's always been interesting to me that, that this visitation of the angel of the Lord, Jesus, comes and says, look, I'm going to still take care of you. This is not entirely your fault. God is going to do a Romans 8.28 thing here. He's going to work all things together to the good for those who love God. We don't find that Hagar was you know, being completely disobedient to God here. She's in a bad situation, and she was placed there, some at her own doing and some at others' doing. And though she is going to give birth to Ishmael, the founder of the Arab peoples of the earth, God said, I'm still going to take care of you. That's the hand of God. That, that is a God who loves us. He says, I'm going to take care of you. Yeah, you messed up. Abram messed up. Sarai messed up. But I'm going to fix what's messed up. And we have no reason to believe that Abram didn't enjoy uh, Ishmael's company in the home. And God has called El Roy in this, or El Roi, which is the proper enunciation of it, the God who sees. And even though he was going to be a kind of a wild guy, not a real flattering description. And he was going to live in hostility with his brothers. You have to be really careful to not just blanket apply this description across racial lines and across ethnic lines. I've talked to an awful lot of just absolutely beautiful Arab people. Many of them who love the Lord. But there's a tension that still exists in the Middle East that comes from this very event. 
You don't have to go there for more than about 30 seconds and you'll see it. First time you drive through the security wall in East Jerusalem, coming into the city. And on one side you have deep poverty. And on the other side, you have Mount Scopus. Beautiful homes. You can see the tension. You can see the fight. And yet, the Arab people, the Jewish people, are actually related. Abram's the father of both. One in obedience and one in disobedience. And it ought to tell you something about disobedience. It's never worked out well. Hagar needed to submit to God. You know, when you read that passage that James begins in such a, a, just an in-your-face way, it's like, where do these fights come from among you? They come from within you. Your desire for pleasure, war within your members, within your own body. You want, you do not have, you, you murder, you covet, you, you fight to obtain, you fight to war, and, and yet you have not because you ask not. You see anything in this passage where Abram sets down, goes back to his altar and says, God, this is tough. This is hard. Sarah and I are waiting. We're trusting you, God. No, you don't see that. You see them giving in to the struggle, the struggles that all of us have. If you're here tonight, I can pretty much guarantee you there's not a person in this room that doesn't have some struggles in their life with God. Matter of fact, I'd go out on a limb and say there's not a person in this room who doesn't have some struggles with God somewhere in your life. Might be a little thing, might be a big thing, could be some thought processes, might be some habits or behaviors, but I would go out on a limb and say there's not a single person in this room who doesn't at times struggle with God in some area. The answer is not telling God what to do with that. The answer is running back to God and letting Him do what He wants to do with it. It's not being disobedient, it's being obedient. Because I know what God does when we're disobedient. He chastens those whom He loves. Amen? So if you want a spanking, be disobedient. If you want to have joy and peace, if you want to have God's work and His fruit of His Spirit in your life, then you be obedient, even if you have to wait a little while longer. And if those things don't come to fruition, it's on God. You have not, James said, because you ask not, or you ask wrongly, you ask amiss. You don't ask the right way. You're not asking the right question. You're you're trying to do it your way. You ask, you don't receive, because you're you're asking the wrong way, verse 3 of James 4 says. You see, because God's a jealous God. And he gives us a little bit of solution towards the end of that, that chapter, and I'll leave it for you to read, but I'll paraphrase it for you. It begins with a central thought, and it's the one that they needed here. Submit to God. Do what God says. Ask him his opinion, and then whatever it is that he tells you, do it. And it goes on and lists six other things. Resisting the devil would be another one. You can kind of see how that played out in this particular passage. They hadn't submitted to God. They certainly weren't resisting the the devil in this. They weren't resisting uh, the the things that the enemy was trying to speak. They, They were not drawing near to God. They were actually running away from God. See, Sarah had to submit to, to God. Hagar had to submit to God. And ultimately, Abram had to submit to God. That's how this whole thing gets turned around. They all wake up in the morning and go, wow, we need to listen to God and stop listening to each other and our own instincts, our own thoughts, our own whims, our own cares, our own concerns. Because God actually is going to fix it. He's going to send another baby. His name's going to be Isaac. Amen. He's going to actually fix the problem. 
He's going to step back into the situation. He's going to apply faith to it in spite of the failure of Abram and Sarai. We need to let him reign in our lives. We need to allow that abounding grace to abound all the more. You know, God didn't just wink at this, this sin. It bore fruit. It's still bearing fruit. But he did apply grace to it as a bandage. And that's, that's the beauty of where we stand today. God's grace is greater than all of my sin. Amen? Anybody in here thankful for that? I am. Amen. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And in grace, God sees Hagar fleeing to Egypt, and he sends Jesus to go meet her. No, 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 sweetheart, you need to come back. This is not all on you. We're going we're gonna to work this out. Made her the mother of a great nation. Great nation of peoples. Proud people, intelligent people. Inventive people. I'm not so sure that I really appreciate them inventing algebra, but I'm going to go with that one. You see, God does have a way to work these things out. Satan wants us to think that our disobedience detours, which is what we have here. And hear this well as we close. Satan wants you to think that your disobedience detours are permanent roads. And they're not. Your disobedience detours are not permanent roads that you have to travel the rest of your days. You may have some bumps in the new road. You, you may have some times and you're thinking, wow, this could have been a lot smoother. It could have been a whole lot shorter if I had taken the straight path that led to his will. But like Abram, Abram and Sarah here, when we confess our sins and we accept his cleansing, he's faithful, he's just to forgive it. I move on, amen? Those detours might bring a circumstance, but grace always overcomes detours. Always overcomes detours. It's grace that gets us home. That's why Paul, as, as he finishes up Romans chapter 8, he said, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. That's great grace, family. That's great word for us to end on this tonight. Because that great grace is greater than all my sin. That great grace is greater than all my failures. Past, present, and future. The ones that I haven't yet done. But somehow, some way, somewhere, those little faux pas, those things that you are going to entertain in a, in a moment of foolishness, you're going to actually do. His grace is still sufficient for those things as well. And so as we walk in his ways, we experience the depths of his grace. Amen? Just stand and let's pray. Father, thank you that in the face of our own Abram and Sarai and Hagar moments, we find your great grace that's greater than all of our sin. When we repent, when we confess and turn you're quick to forgive, and your healing is instantaneous in our lives. And so we thank you, God, for that healing work or the work that you did in Abram and Sarai that you would bring still, even after their unfaithfulness, you proved your faithfulness by still bringing Isaac into their lives. And you even blessed Ishmael. You, you blessed Hagar. Lord, you still caused them to prosper. Lord, that you sought them out when Hagar was running away. You went after her. Thank you that you go after us. We thank you for that great grace. Pray that you'd help us to never take a dangerous detour. Lord, we stop long enough to listen to your voice and turn around and come running back. 
Would we not be the prodigal children, Lord, but the steadfast and immovable ones that walk close with you? We love you. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.